The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations and the following message comes from The Guardian Network a national community of preferred financial representatives and agencies dedicated to helping Americans live with greater financial confidence through a collaborative planning approach. Have you thought about what the cash for that Insta-worthy burger or latte you ordered out this week might buy you tomorrow? The Guardian Network created this cool, useful digital experience that can help you to see how your spending today lines up with your priorities. Play the cash stash dash at livingconfidently.com forward slash Cash Dash. Meredith Jones, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So by way of introduction, uh, Meredith is an alternative investment consultant and author of Women of the Street, Why Female Money Managers Generate Higher Returns and How You Can Too. So the cool thing about her book is that it was named the best investment book of the year by the Axiom Business Book Awards in 2016. And the very next year, my book won the same award, marking the (laughs) first time in history that two kids from Alabama ever won back-to-back Distinguished Investment Writing Awards. Uh, She was named to Inc. Magazine's 17 Inspiring Women to Watch in 2017, Uh, And she is also on the board of directors for Rock the Street, Wall Street, a nonprofit that provides one-year financial and investment literacy courses for high school girls. So Meredith, I know you do a ton of speaking. I do a ton of speaking. And a lot of times when someone reads your bio off, it doesn't feel like it represents you all that well. So why don't you tell us one thing that we should know about you that's not on the bio? Oh, goodness. Um, I am an avid reader, uh, and I spend a couple of hours each morning before I start working looking at all of the investment industry topics that interest me. And as a result, I have somewhat of a reputation as being uh, a rain man in the industry, just being able to pull up random and arcane facts. Uh, So I apologize to your listeners in advance if I cliff claven them at any point during this broadcast. Well, uh, next time I'm in Nashville, I'm going to have you on my trivia team. We will dominate. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to jump in. In a recent TED Talk you gave that I know has been the source of some frustration for you, but in a recent TED Talk you gave, you said that your career was a product of a certain kind of luck. Uh, Can you talk about the various types of luck that you've identified and how they contributed to you being where you are today? Sure. You know, the the thing that always seems to happen with women is that they, when asked about their success, will say, I lucked into or I was lucky that. And I started thinking about that when I was preparing for this TED Talk uh, and how luck may have been responsible for my success in the investment industry. And At first, I I started thinking solely about this one want ad that I answered that was my entry point into the investment industry. It was a want ad for a entry-level hedge fund analyst at a family office here in Nashville, Tennessee. And whenever anyone's asked me about how I got into the industry and how I got to be where I am, I've always referenced that ad. 
Um, and I've always gone back to that, you know, wonderful fallback that so many women have, which was, I was just lucky. And I decided if I stood up and talked about that, it would be an incredibly short and boring TED talk uh, because nobody wants to hear about a classified ad for 15 to 20 minutes. And so I needed to delve deeper into what constitutes luck. And I figured out from uh, many hours of sitting around and contemplating the topic that really I had been the beneficiary of three types of luck. There was completely random serendipity, things that just happened to you out of the blue that you have no control over, such as where you're born, uh, what type of uh, time period you're born into, um, who your parents are, what type of advantages you may have. None of that you have any control over. And certainly, although I grew up a poor kid in Alabama, I was the beneficiary of some of those types of luck. For example, I could have been born at a time when women weren't afforded the opportunity to obtain an education. And yet I was, and that was dumb luck. Um, I also was the recipient of luck uh, or micro opportunities that other people created for me and gave to me. Uh, and those were really instrumental in me being able to get that first job in the investment industry. For example, again, poor semi-rural kid in Alabama, I had a junior high school teacher who decided to teach uh, her class how to research and trade stocks. That's not something you generally find on a curriculum in Alabama, particularly not in the 1980s. And so when I was older, I had comfort and familiarity with a lot of the terminology for that entry-level position. And the employer that was looking to hire noticed that, and it made a difference. And then, of course, there was a third type of luck, and that was good luck that I made for myself. And remember that whole, I read two hours about the industry every morning, I'm the Cliff Clavin of facts. Once I got that first opportunity, I created luck for myself, and I worked really hard to maximize every opportunity that I was given. And so in a very short period of time, I was able to advance from that, that entry-level position. And so all three of those types of luck really allowed me to move, to get the job, and then to move up through the ranks in investing. Yeah, I think that's a really cool taxonomy of luck that you've created there. I think most people, you know, dumb luck is out of our hands. Uh, I think a lot of people have a sense that we need to create our own luck, meaning that we need to work hard, we need to put in the time and the effort. But what do you do to create luck for other people? What you, you talked in your talk about doing something every day to create luck for other people. How can we go about that in our daily lives? Well, I think it's really important to think about that because, you know, I'm sure that the individuals who created luck for me along the way probably weren't really cognizant of the impact it was going to have on my life down the line. But I think that uh, we can do things in a lot of small ways and we can do it with more intention, perhaps, uh, than was done at the, at the time that I was growing up so that we uh, open up avenues to people who may not otherwise have them. So one of the things, for example, that I'm involved in is Rock the Street Wall Street. You, you mentioned that during uh, your read of my uh, painfully embarrassing bio. And uh, Rock the Street Wall Street provides uh, financial investment literacy education to high school girls. So one of the things it's doing is building a pipeline of women and women of color 
to come into our industry and, and further provide diversity, diversity within our industry. And so that's one way that I try to give back. And that's a very formal way. But, but there are a lot of ways that people can create luck for people that don't involve getting involved with a formal initiative. For example, girls have a tendency to be uh, paid less for chores than boys. So the, the gender pay gap actually starts really early. Uh, girls report that they don't get talked to about financial issues in the home as much as boys do. Uh, girls get paid less for babysitting than boy babysitters, even though they're 97% of babysitters. And so, you know, if you think about that, some of the things you can do to create luck for girls specifically in this case is talk to them about money and finance. Talk to them about how you're going to pay for their college, for example. Uh, make sure that if you have kids and you're paying them for chores that, you know, you don't try to overcompensate for boys who may not want to do quote unquote girl chores by paying them more for the same chores. Um, you know, talk positively about the business that you're in. If you're in the investment or wealth management industry, so that uh, people get us, children get a sense that this is something that they may want to do in their life. Um, but, you know, like I said, I, I try to do something large or small every day. It may be as small as buying uh, the person behind me at the Starbucks a cup of coffee, just because you never know how that may change their outlook in their day to uh, working with entrepreneurs, particularly uh, diverse entrepreneurs, to try to give them advice about growing their business. Uh, I think you just have to to pick the opportunities that you have, uh, go into them wholeheartedly and and do whatever thing, large or small, that you can. So one of my proudest parenting moments was when my daughter, who was eight years old at the time, my oldest daughter, was assigned a, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up assignment at school. And she brought it home and I was going through a folder one morning while getting her ready for school and I discovered it. She didn't even show it to me. Uh, and it said, the opening line was, did you know that two thirds of Americans are unprepared for retirement? That's why I want to be a financial professional. <laughs> and That's that why was... I want to steal your child, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my proudest parenting moments. So um, on the topic of women and money, I, I want to talk, of course, combine our two worlds here and talk about women as sort of the prototypical good good investor from a behavioral standpoint. So I, I want to cite research much of it from your fantastic book uh, that I pulled on just how women behave in investment context. So to put it bluntly, uh, women beat men as behavioral investors across the board. So women save at a higher rate, they generate higher returns in both professional and retail contexts. Uh, they're less likely to make dramatic swings like going all to cash. They do more due diligence before making an investment. Uh, they've been shown to be more skilled at assessing probability. And their outperformance is even greater during times of panic. So what accounts for this, Meredith? What are some of the factors that account for this outperformance of women relative to men uh, across all investment contexts? Well, you know, I think the, the book really boils it down to three primary things. Uh, number one, uh, biologically speaking, women are different than men. Uh, you know, I, I think we all intuitively know that. The, the example that I like to give people uh, who may be addicted to Ninja Warrior, as I am, uh, you know, if you think about the warped wall on American Ninja Warrior, 
Um, there are very few women that make it up the warped wall, but uh, most of the men in the competition, assuming they don't wipe out in some spectacular, bloody, or wet way during the middle of the competition, most of them will make it up the warped wall. And that has to do with biological differences, muscle mass, uh, upper body strength to pull yourself up that last, uh, last bit of uh, distance up the wall. And so I look at something like that and I think to myself, how is it possible that we accept that women and men are different biologically um, from a just pure physical standpoint, but that wouldn't have an impact on how perhaps their brain structure may be laid out or, or how they process information? And the answer is it can't be, uh, you know, one is the same and one is different. They're, they're both different. And there's been a lot of research that points to that. For example, if you've, if you've ever looked at John Coates' book, uh, The Hour Between the Wolf and the Dog, he does a lot of work looking at men and testosterone and how testosterone impacts investment behavior. And one thing we know for sure is that men have more testosterone than women. And so as a result, that, those biological differences can impact everything to from trading behavior to stress response, which comes out when markets are difficult. Cognitive processes are also different. Uh, so for example, again, starting with biology, women and men's brain structure is different. Uh, for Men have a larger amygdala, which is the stress portion of your brain, and they have a tendency to react outwardly to stress, which means when markets are difficult, the way that that gets processed is they want to fix the pain issue. They want to do something to make the stress end. And so what can happen is that men can end up selling into that environment just to make the pain stop. Uh, but women, because their amygdala is smaller and they have a tendency to uh, process stress internally, or they can process stress like me by eating an entire tub of ice cream, um, they don't necessarily need to react in an outward fashion in order to make the pain stop. And so there's been studies, for example, one from Fidelity most notably, that during the financial crisis, women were 10% uh, less likely to sell into the market crisis. And so as a result, they didn't lock in their losses. They were able to capture the full run-up uh, once it started again in March of 2009. Uh, so, so basically, that's a behavioral outcome that comes from the biology and the cognitive processes. So when you take all of those together, the, the biology, the cognition, and the behavior, you end up with a group of individuals who have been shown to be extraordinarily successful investors across the spectrum. Um, if you look at female founders, for example, female founders uh, tend to outperform companies with all male founders. If you look at mutual funds, mixed gender mutual funds have a tendency to outperform. If you look at hedge funds, hedge funds run by women have a tendency to outperform. Uh, if you look at retail accounts, uh, there have been studies, the most recent one probably by Wells Fargo, that showed that women's retail accounts have a tendency to outperform over a five-year period. So we're really able to maximize the inherent traits that that uh, that good behave that good investors tend to have and turn those into money. So you've given some amazing stats, a product of this two hour a day reading, no doubt. But for all of the successes of women money managers, uh, the research suggests that women are not taken seriously within the industry to a to a pretty great extent. You know, one study found that eight out of ten women have been the victim of negative stereotypes 
about their ability to manage money. Uh, only 9% of respondents in another study uh, thought that women would be better money managers than men. 91% of people think that men would be better than women, uh, even though the research suggests something very different. Uh, so how can we as an industry begin to have eyes to see uh, what the research is speaking to fairly plainly? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is we have to actually recognize and give the, the research some credence. So one of the things that I run into when I do run into people who are perhaps not as open uh, to my evangelical message of women are so money is that uh, they look at the samples and they think to themselves or they say out loud, gee, this is a really small sample. Maybe this is, uh, you know, the fact that only the best and brightest women manage to make it into the investment industry. And so that's why they outperform. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I find really important in this is to always pair the investment industry returns. So the returns of mutual funds, uh, venture capital, private equity, hedge funds with the retail information, because uh, the retail information is based on thousands, in some cases, more than 2 million accounts. Uh, those are not necessarily the best and brightest women or men. Uh, and so that's a very good barometer for just how powerful this information is. We're seeing it exhibited not just in the professional investors who are, you know, again, the best and brightest of their kind. We're seeing it in the average retail investor, too. Um, the second thing I think we have to do is, is just really be aware of the information that's out there. Not too long ago, I was at a conference in Texas, and I was on a panel about women's issues, and I happened to discuss some gender pay information that had come out from Barclays that morning, showing that women were systematically underpaid, uh, both in terms of normal compensation and really graphically in bonus compensation. And at the end of that panel discussion, two gentlemen from the audience came up to me and they said, gee, we thought the, the pay, gender pay gap, we thought that was over. We thought that didn't exist anymore. Um, and there, there's plenty of information out there that shows that it exists, but I think we have a tendency to block it out over time or to think, geez, it's been 10 years since I read something about that. Surely it's fixed now. Um, and so part of it is just being open to the information. Part of it is taking in all of the information. Um, but really, the data is out there, and, and we just have to uh, read it uh, and, and really accept it. Yeah, and none of this gets fixed if we, if we bury our heads in the sands, right? If we, if we just think that time will take care of it, it, time won't take care of it. It'll take courage and activism and, and people getting involved. And the main thing is it takes intention, right? Sure. So, I mean, if you're not intentional about something, then nothing really ever changes. And so one of the reasons that I spend so much time reading about women and diversity and responsible investing and uh, behavioral finance and the whole smorgasbord of, of what I read about in the morning is I want to take in as much information as I can in an intentional fashion so that I can act on that information and end up being a better investor, a better citizen of the investment community, you really, I think, have to be open to the information. And when you hear it, think about what can I do to change that situation? How can I change the way that, that things are gonna be moving forward? 
So there is a much discussed uh, confidence gap. We've talked about the, the pay gap a number of times on this episode, but there's also a confidence gap with respect to women and money. Uh, women as a group are less confident than men in terms of their self-perceptions around financial capability. Uh, if they're asked, you know, how risk savvy, how investment savvy are you, uh, they're likely to give lower responses historically than men. So uh, there's evidence that this is shrinking. Uh, younger generations of women, I think because of uh, listening to messages like yours, uh, younger generations of, of women are more confident uh, than those generations that came before them. And we also find that this confidence gap narrows among women who earn six-figure-plus salaries. So it's we're making progress. So I, I guess I have a two-part question. The, the first question would be, how can we narrow this confidence gap? But then my second question is, with sort of my behavioral hat on, is um, do we do we want to to shrink the confidence gap? Because I think that part of the reason why women have outperformed men historically uh, is because they haven't been as overconfident as men. They haven't been subject to the same levels of certainty and braggadocio that men have been subject to. So uh, speak a bit to the confidence gap, if you would. And, you know, do we want to eradicate that gap? And how can we do it in a way that doesn't lead women to make the same mistakes that men do? So I think one of the most important things that is changing for women who are in younger generations is that they're actually seeing role models of women that are successful in investing and in the investment industry and in the wealth management industry. Um, when I first started in the industry back in 1998, it actually took me until 2007 before I met another woman who had a similar job. Uh, to mind, and I was the the head of research at a at a family office by that time. So you know that's a long time to go without finding someone who is a role model or a kindred spirit or even someone who just looks like you. Um, and so that's something that I think is changing, and that's changing for the better. Um, you know when I when I released my book back in 2015, I went on Twitter and I asked people. If you can name a, a successful female investor, I will give you a free copy of the book. And I only gave away five copies of the book that day mm. uh, because most people didn't know a successful female investor. And now, you know, while they're not household names like, uh, you know, Warren Buffett or Cliff Asnes or something like that. I think we're seeing more profiled in uh, mainstream and in industry press. And that can only help because if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I hate to be cheesy that way, but that is just a fact. Um, you know, if all you see are older white men who are six called out as being the best investors, why would you ever think that you could be one too? So I think that's really one of the things that uh, the industry is doing right uh, and that we should continue to do in order to boost confidence. Now, in terms of the, the confidence uh, problem that, uh, that men sometimes have and that was identified so famously in the Barber and Odin uh, study, Boys Will Be Boys, uh, where they showed that overconfidence was responsible for men having lower returns from uh, women by about one to two percentage points a year. You know, there's a difference between confidence and overconfidence. Um, you know, 
having women be confident investors is great. Getting to, to the point of overconfidence obviously would result in some of that same trading behavior, which is uh, typically overtrading because when you're overconfident, every idea you have is a good one. So if you think you should buy something, you buy it. If you think you should sell something, you sell it. If you think the market is wrong, you are clearly right and the market is clearly wrong. So um, part of that is actually uh, attributable to the biological factors that I mentioned. So I think it would be difficult for women as a group to achieve that same level of overconfidence without working really hard at it, uh, which is not to say it's not possible because as we know, humans can, can do anything, uh, even if it's ridiculous, if they set their mind to it. Um, but I do think it would be it would be difficult to do that. Um, and then there's other parts of women uh, and their trading hygiene, so to speak, that I think also help to mitigate that. So um, you know, I I don't really worry about that as much as I worry about women not having the confidence to invest at all, um, because there are a number of factors that make that lack of confidence a much more dangerous. Uh, adversary than the whole issue of overconfidence. Yeah, it sounds like because of some of the uh, societal and physiological and neurological reasons that you identified, maybe not, maybe not as big a problem as all that. Not not likely to happen. So uh, I want to I will tell you a bit of a story that's become sort of a metaphor in in, in my mind for how our industry uh, approaches women in a retail context primarily. So last year, the Braves got a new stadium, built a you know beautiful new park uh, out in Cobb County. And so I took my daughter, who's a bit of a baseball fan, I took her to a game there and I said, hey, we got to go check out the new stadium. Um, so we're walking around, seeing what vendors are there, seeing what stores exist in this new park that we've never been to. And we come across one called, you know, something like Braves, Braves Country Girls. And I'm, I'm excited. And then, you know, I go, oh, Charlotte, you know, let's let's go check out this this girl store. It's just for girls. And they have all the, the brave stuff for girls. So I take her in and there's, you know, sequin jerseys and pink hats and the rest. And I go, hey, you know, hon, you can get you can get anything you want. You know, dad will buy you whatever you want. Just you pick out what you want and I'll get it for you. And she looks around and she turns around to me and goes, dad, these are lame. I want to wear the same stuff the players wear. And that was like a, a, just such an aha moment for me that even this, you know, then eight-year-old kid knew that she was being pandered to, knew that she was being sort of condescended and marketed to. And I feel like that's something that we sometimes as an industry do as we wake up to how, uh, how roundly women have been ignored by the industry. Our first impulse, the, maybe it comes from a good place, is to sort of pinkify, if that's a word, to sort of pinkify our offering. So how can we engage in outreach uh, and, and try and make right these historical wrongs without being pandering or lame? Well, first off, go Charlotte, uh, <laughs> I have to say. And secondly, I mean, you're absolutely right. I don't use the term pinkify, uh, but you know, I do think the industry has a tendency to pink it and shrink it when it comes to women. Um, they uh, redesign brochures to make them more women-friendly colors. They you know, do all kinds of things, except actually address the real problems that women face when it comes to wealth management and investing. And they are 
real. I mean, for example, the pay gap that I mentioned means that women typically have a smaller nest egg, and yet they also have a larger, a longer lifespan. And so when you put those two things together, that's pretty disastrous. And so instead of giving me a nice, uh, you know, pink koozie with the wealth manager's uh, logo emblazoned on it, what would be really great would be for them to have a plan on how I can manage to live out the rest of my lifespan on the money that I have or how I can grow it so that I can be able to do that. Uh, women have a tendency to uh, want to care for uh, siblings and parents more in their older ages. And so having the income to be able to do that is something that is a critical issue for women uh, that has nothing to do with sequins or sparkles or glitter. Uh, women are much more interested in responsible investing. If you look at surveys up to 80% plus of women uh, state that they would like to invest in a way that is aligned with their values. And yet the wealth management and investment community is pretty behind on those issues. And so, you know, I, I think what we need to do is, is focus on the legitimate issues that, that face women as an investing group, as opposed to just trying to make investing cozy. Yeah. So it's a it's a combination, it sounds like, of of understanding that in general there are real um that there are real issues that women are up against that are somewhat unique to them. You know, living longer, uh not negotiating first paychecks is hard, gender pay gap, all of these things uh exist and they're real and they have a real impact. Uh so understanding those those tendencies and those struggles, but then also realizing uh, also realizing that every person is an individual and meeting them where they're at and trying to balance balance those two things. Yeah, I can't imagine my investment advisor ever showing up with anything glittery for me. I, I think they know exactly <laughs> what <laughs> would happen in that situation. <laughs> exactly how that would be met. Exactly. So as we begin to wrap up, I want you to now impart some of this wisdom on other folks in ways that they can read their two hours a day and begin to fill their heads with some of this good stuff. So I'll ask you, what is a book or an idea that changed your life? Probably the number one, uh, I would have to say, is Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office. Uh, it's a book, it, it's a little dated at this point, but one of the things I had to realize is what was I doing to contribute to reinforcing some of the stereotypes or unconscious biases that may exist in my industry and in other industries. And, and I certainly was guilty of some of those. For example, uh, I used to be the apology queen. I could apologize for anything. I'm sorry that your meeting ran long. I'm sorry that I was on the phone when you called. I'm sorry just for breathing your air in this conference room. You know, I apologize for things that were in my control, out of my control, that had nothing to do with me. Uh, it, it was really uh, kind of sad, uh, and it, it didn't help me to advance uh, or be taken seriously because I was the girl who, who was around and taking responsibility for everything bad that happened. And one of the things I had to realize was that um, I'm not that powerful. I'm uh, not so powerful that every bad thing that happens is my fault, uh, just like I'm not so powerful that every good thing that happens is my fault. And so, you know, it, it's things like that. It's things like when uh, people 
uh, when women go in to ask for a raise, they have a tendency to ask once. Um, and if the answer is no, they don't ask again. Um, I've had guys that have worked for me who come in every quarter with a graph of here's what I think other people are paid. Here's what I think their utility to the company is. And here's where I think I am. I, you know, I want to be higher than these three people because I think I contribute more. And, you know, they come in with, with, you know, visual aids and, and relentlessly. Um, and so, you know, I realized just because I got a no didn't mean no forever. It just meant not right now. Um, and so I had to fix those behaviors for myself uh, before I could expect uh, the other side to meet me halfway by, by getting over some of their unconscious bias. Yeah, I've, I've seen research that shows that men will ask for a raise when they meet 50% of the competencies, you know, ask for a promotion when they meet 50% of the competencies listed on a, on a job posting, and that women will wait until they meet 100%, right? Same, same sort of idea. Uh, men, men will tend to ask for a raise for any old thing. Uh, women will be slower to do so and then maybe only ask once. So great book suggestion. Thank you. All right. And then finally... We want to give listeners concrete advice, concrete, actionable steps that they can uh, take today to start making a difference. So name three things, if you would, that we as an industry can start doing today to move toward greater parity. Well, I'll give you three Ps. So the first is pipeline. One of the things we have to do is build up a pipeline of women who want to be in this industry. And let's face it, our industry doesn't always have the best street cred. Uh, when it comes to people who are outside the industry and with women specifically. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. The organization that I work with, Rock the Street, Wall Street, uh, there's college level organizations like Girls Who Invest and Smart Women Securities. Um, there are, like I said, a, a whole host of small things that you can do, like talking positively about your industry in front of your kids. Um, but we have to build up that pipeline uh, if we expect that we're going to have a more diverse investment community in the future. Uh, the second thing is parity. Um, and the second P. And, you know, parity is really a critical thing. You know, one of the things that I notice at a lot of organizations is that they may have a work-life balance program, uh, but that's geared towards women. And I'm pretty sure that most men want to have a work-life balance too. I'm, you know, I don't think it, that men want to have a kid, for example, and never go to a soccer game or a play or a fifth grade graduation. We need to start thinking of work-life balance as a human issue, not as a women's issue. And so, you know, that's a huge part of parity. It makes it really difficult sometimes for women to take advantage of some of the programs that may exist at their company because they're so stigmatized as being a women's program. Uh, so so let's, let's make it a human thing. Um, and then also, of course, address other parity issues like pay and speaking in meetings and things like that. And then the third uh, issue, the third P is promote. Um, so we have to do a better job of promoting women in this industry. There was a study that came out from Prequen last year that showed, for example, that only one in five employees in the alternative investment industry was a, was a woman and the vast majority of them were junior. So we have to do a good job of taking that class and other classes of women who have come into this industry and graduating them to the next level. Because again, if there's not more women at the top, 
uh, and we just have these really unbalanced uh, organizations where maybe there's 50% gender parity uh, at the lower levels, but the C-suite is still 10, 20% uh, women and, and the rest are guys, then we haven't really succeeded at anything. So promotion is, is really key. Excellent. Easy to remember too. Nice alliteration. We've got pipeline, parity, and promotion, a great place to start on this important work. Uh, Meredith Jones, you've been incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom here today. If folks want to uh, read your ideas and follow your work, where can they find you? Uh, so I have a blog uh, on my website, www.aboutmjones.com, and I have the most uh, convoluted Twitter handle known to mankind. It's MJ underscore Meredith underscore J. It really is a terrible Twitter handle, right. but great insights. If I great had insights Dr. from that terrible handle. <laughs> if I had a, a TARDIS, I would go back in time and, uh, and change that. But I do try to post a lot of the more compelling stories that I read on any given day to that Twitter account. So if you don't want to go through the two hours of uh, Rain Man-esque reading, uh, you can get some of the highlights on that feed. Yes. Let, let MJ's pain be your gain. Thank you again, <laughs> Meredith. Thank you so much for your, for your wisdom today. Thank you. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.